Okay, so welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Charles Small. I'm the director of the Yale Initiative for the Interdisciplinary Study of Anti-Semitism. And tonight, this evening, it's a great honor to be able to host David Harris. Mr. Harris is the executive director of the American Jewish uh, Committee, and he has held this position since 1990, so we're very grateful that he's come up to the meeting this evening. Um, Mr. Harris has been involved in issues for decades. Um, he was very much involved and involved in the ground, uh, helping the emigration of uh, the former Soviet Jews uh, emigrate to the West, the United States, and to Israel. He was actually detained on several occasions and expelled from the former USSR for his activities to help with the refusenics. He was serving as the national coordinator for the Historical Freedom Sunday for Soviet Jewry. This is one of the huge turnouts. Uh, in 1987, uh, people are marching in Washington and also in Canada and Europe to let the Soviet Jewish people go. He's a key figure he, he, uh, in the 16-year struggle to repeal the resolution in the United Nations that Zionism is racism, so he was on the forefront of that. He's been honored uh, in many ways on several occasions. I'll just be brief. In 2003, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Russian Jewish community in the United States for his lifelong dedication to the physical and spiritual return of Soviet Jews to the Jewish people. He's been honored uh, by the government of Poland in 1999, the German government in 2004 by the German Armed Forces, in 2005 on two occasions by the French government, and in fact in 2007 he received the, uh, the French Medal of the Republic from President Sarkozy. Uh, and he was also uh, honored by the president of Latvia, and the Latvian government and president gave him the highest orders, the order of the three stars. He studied his first degree was at the University of Pennsylvania. He graduated uh, in international relations from the London School of Economics. He studied at St. Anthony's College, my old alma mater in Oxford, and has been a visiting scholar at John Hopkins University. Haven. <laughs> 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 
but he said, first you have to work for your dinner, so give your speech, and if you do well enough, I'll show you what real Italian food is like, like here in New Haven. So I'm looking forward both to this occasion, um, to this conversation, and also to what's promised afterwards. I'd also like to introduce my colleague, Doug Lee, um, from the American Jewish Committee, who's uh, joined me here this evening. And Doug has also brought some information um, about AJC, but also for the students at Yale, about uh, our fellowship program, of which he himself was uh, a participant, and which I think offers some very exciting public policy opportunities for those who may be interested in the intersection between um, Jewish diplomacy, Jewish advocacy on the one hand, and public policy slash international affairs on the other. And for those who may not be students, but who may have uh, children or grandchildren who are students, you're entitled to take the brochure as well, please, and to share it with them. Uh, I was asked to speak about um, the challenges um, in global diplomacy, which is what, uh, as you heard, I, I've been doing for a living now for, uh, I hate to admit it now, uh, over three decades. Uh, and uh, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about not necessarily the daily challenges, though I'm happy in conversation to do so, but to step back and talk about perhaps larger challenges, which may be here not just today, but also tomorrow. In fact, it may even loom a bit larger tomorrow. So uh, I want to do that first. And secondly, I want to, if I may, take you inside a little bit uh, the decision-making in an organization like AJC in terms of not only grappling with challenges, but grappling, if you will, with dilemmas that we sometimes face in dealing with issues out there. So that's my agenda for, uh, for my part of the evening. Uh, I hope your agenda is to formulate good thought-provoking questions so we can stimulate discussion about things that I haven't touched on or touched haven't touched on convincingly or sufficiently um, uh, in the course of my remarks. Firstly, uh, I think we have to face the fact that the world is structurally changing. Uh, that, may, uh, that may seem uh, painfully obvious, but the question is what changes are taking place and how do they affect Jews Jewish communities, and Jewish diplomacy. The biggest change, as far as I'm concerned, structurally, is that we had a brief period in the 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Soviet order, in which the United States rode high, indeed, rode supreme, when the French foreign minister of the time, Hubert Petrin, referred to the United States less than admiringly, as the new hyperpower. Superpower was not sufficient to describe the concentration of power that America had on the ashes of the Soviet order. Well, that period seems to have come to an end to the, to the extent that it actually existed. And here we are in 2008, looking forward and frankly, we see a rather different world in which the United States still has enormous power, to be obvious. But whether Mr. Vadrine today would refer to the United States as the hyperpower, 
and refer to the world in which we live as a unipolar world with only one superpower, uh, to me is doubtful. In fact, what is happening is uh, a world in which there are new centers of power that in some respects are competing and in some respects are cooperating, but that do not have identical interests. And that we as a nation, but also we as, if you will, Jewish diplomats, are going to have to grapple with. Conditions the United States, center of power include the European Union, with Brussels as its capital, 27 member states, and with other states online seeking admission to the EU. The EU's combined GNP today exceeds that of the United States, which means that in today's world, the greatest concentration of economic power is within the European Union. Given the fact that not only do you have the 27 member states and the aspiring states, which range from countries like Croatia to the biggest, if you will, challenge of all for the EU, Turkey, and other nations like the Ukraine, uh, more detached, but yet looking flirtingly at the possibility of one day entering the EU, you have a number of other nations in the world, more geographically distant perhaps, that nonetheless both admire the EU and what it has achieved, and in some respects, some respects have, I won't say outsourced, but nonetheless um, begun to heed EU foreign policy decisions. You see this, for example, played out in the United Nations, where a number of other countries in Latin America and elsewhere um, may or may not do their own homework, but when it comes to voting, will tend to keep a careful eye on what the EU does, what it says, and uh, follow suit. And then, of course, you have another power center, China. This galloping colossus, uh, whose uh, century the 21st might be. It's not entirely clear yet, but nonetheless, what is evident is that uh, the China of the 21st century will in no way resemble the China of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, its power has grown. Its global reach has been extended. And any of you who spend time, for example, in Latin America, or in Africa, or other parts of the world, will be struck, as we have been, by the long reach of China, which includes the effort to uh, secure long-term natural resources contracts, energy, uh, various minerals, and so forth, uh, but also the growing presence of Chinese communities, workers and others in, involved in projects sponsored by the Chinese government as their form of international aid and assistance in Africa, Latin America, and elsewhere. And what's interesting for the United States here, and frankly what poses a challenge for the United States, is that whereas the United States episodically attaches conditions to its assistance, 
uh, often revolving around notions of democracy, the rule of law, administrative reform, human rights. The fact of the matter is the Chinese, from this respect, have a more apolitical kind of approach to relief and assistance. They're not looking for Robert Mugabe to change the method of government in Zimbabwe as a condition for engaging Zimbabwe when what China is looking for above all is addressing its own commercial mercantile needs, if you will, for a growing population with growing expectations attached to the emerging middle class. So you have now three major actors at least, plus you have a series of other actors whose, whose activity on the global stage also affects both the American position and, yes, the Jewish position. And you can look at them in, in a couple of ways. You can look at them as individual nations, Brazil, Russia, India. You could look at them as groupings of nations who are trying, by um, attaching themselves to one another, to leverage their position, their voice, their clout. Uh, take, for example, the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, take Guam, Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Moldova. Take Mercosur. Take the G5. We often refer to the G8. Uh, how many of us know there's a G5? China, India, South Africa, Brazil, and Mexico, if I recall. And that overlaps with the BRIC. Brazil, Russia, India, China. And BRIC. Which is huge. So, and, and BRIC, and I can keep going, and I'm sure others can add to the various configurations which have emerged that span continents but that are seeking to achieve diplomatic, political, economic, and or strategic importance. So that's the second way of looking at it. First is individual nations, the second groupings of nations, and the third is resource-rich nations and the growing cloud they have, which in a sense also may create an asymmetrical playing field. Take, for example, the mother of all resources today, oil and gas. And consider the fact, if I'm not mistaken, that every increase of one dollar in the price of a barrel of oil translates into an additional up to $100 billion per month in the coffers of a country like Iran. So, what kind of power is invested in a country like Iran, or for that matter, Venezuela or Saudi Arabia, which otherwise would not be in the same league as the countries I mentioned earlier with much larger populations uh, and reach, but that gives them this exceptional power in a resource-hungry world. The combination of the possession of these valued resources and their ever higher prices also gives additional clout to these countries. So however you want to look at this construct of the world into which we're entering, what it suggests to me at least, as a yes, Jewish diplomat, is that we're going to have to deal with increasing centers of power around the world to achieve our global objectives. And whether the objective 
is trying to advance Israel's quest for peace and security, trying to achieve a two-state settlement between Israel and Palestinians, trying in the longer term to implement a new vision of the Middle East, perhaps even modeled on the European Union model, if one wants to dream. If one wants to talk about the focus of the Institute, seeking to combat anti-Semitism at, at its root, indeed, to extend it to all forms of racism, xenophobia, or if one seeks to achieve goals at the United Nations or through other multilateral institutions which affect our interests, it will require far more sophisticated, solving, and skillful Jewish diplomacy to navigate this terrain. Now, step back for a moment with me, if you will. To a very large degree, and I say this as one, you heard this from Charles, who, who, who's been involved in some of the, let's call it, epic battles of the Jewish world. Not within the Jewish world, those are also epic battles, but I won't, I won't talk to you about them. That's not my subject, I think. Um, although, there's quite a lot to say there. <laughs> but those epic battles of, of the rescue of Ethiopian Jewry, the rescue of Soviet Jewry, the 16-year effort to repeal the uh, UN Resolution 3379 equating Zionism with racism, the effort to ensure uh, the, uh, the solidity of the U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, the effort to ensure that Israel is uh, afforded equal treatment, not better, but not worse, at the UN, uh, and so on. All of those epic battles that have been fought over the last 25, 30, 35 years were all premised on a strong United States. If you think what's the common denominator of those, of those efforts, <coughs> and what explains the success of each of those efforts, and they were successful, extraordinarily successful. <coughs> In every case, the United States has played a pivotal role, absolutely critical role, <coughs> a determinative role. I don't know today whether the same United States in the United Nations General Assembly, for example, could spearhead a successful effort to repeal a resolution such as 3379, which equates Zionism with racism. I don't know. I don't know that the United States today has the muscle, the clout, the standing in order to achieve that kind of success if it determines that this is a high priority for American foreign policy. I don't discount for a moment the key role that the United States could and would play, but the question I'm asking is another one. Would it be determinative in this changing world when the U.S. spearheaded the uh, the abrogation of Zionism as racism, it was 1991. It's a very different year. It was two years after the Berlin Wall came down, and it was the year that the Soviet Union imploded. It was the year, in other words, of the onset of American hyperpower, to quote the French Foreign Minister. So, we have a changing world, 
And we need, as I suggested, uh, Jewish diplomats who understand that world and who know how to go to Beijing and how to go to New Delhi and how to go to Brussels and how to go to Moscow and how to go to other key capitals and how to make a case. A case, I should add, that is not based only on what's good for the Jews, in quotation marks, but a case that can be persuasive to the Chinese or the Indians or the Russians or the Europeans about why our objective ought to be their objective, not simply for our interests, but for their interests. And that's why I speak about the need uh, in global diplomacy for the savvy, sophisticated uh, Jewish diplomat today. Because to understand how you speak to a Chinese leader and how you help that Chinese leader to understand why Israel's well-being and security or the struggle against anti-Semitism or the campaign to prevent Israel's isolation in the UN is not simply an American objective or a Jewish objective or an Israeli objective, but ought to be a Chinese objective and a global objective, requires a, a certain amount of understanding of the other side, uh, in this case of, of the countries I mentioned. The UN itself is becoming a, an ever more important actor. Some welcome that, others do not. I'm not here to suggest whether it's good or bad, it's simply a fact. It's a fact we have to recognize when uh, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee a couple of years ago gave its peace prize to the UN, uh, it was making a statement. And when you travel to Brussels, when you travel to Ottawa, when you travel to Tokyo, when you travel to Oslo and to other key capitals, they view the UN as important. Uh, flawed to be sure, but important. And they're not prepared to ignore or sidestep the UN. And therefore, we can't either. Now, the UN, and you heard from my colleague, and some of you, perhaps if you were here, when Hillel Lawyer of UN Watch spoke, and uh, UN Watch is an affiliate of AJC, um, but if you heard him, then you heard the challenges we faced in the UN, the multilateral system, as Jewish diplomats. Uh, if you weren't there, uh, let me mention a couple of points, and forgive me if anything you hear is repetitive. One thing is not repetitive because the news came today, and that is that just today the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva uh, voted on certain key elections for positions and uh, among them, uh, the person with the highest vote for the UN Human Rights Council is a gentleman named John Ziegler uh, from Switzerland, uh, who um, was a co-founder of the, listen carefully please, the Moabar Gaddafi Human Rights Prize, um, and um, has a, uh, a rather consistent record of uh, support for people like uh, Robert Mugabe, Fidel Castro, uh, and others. Uh, and uh, a rather uh, consistent record of hatred, and I use the word advisedly, for the State of Israel, uh, which he's accused of uh, a whole host of, uh, of, uh, of crimes over the years. Um, John Ziegler was uh, among all of the candidates for the posts, the recipient of the highest number of votes. And here, let me add this, 
might ask where was the United States? And the answer was the United States was absent because the United States is not a member of the UN Human Rights Council. Why should they be? They don't respect the World Court. There are uh, 47 member nations of the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, the body was founded in 2006 as a successor to the discredited UN Human Rights Commission. By the way, discredited the words of Coffee Man and not simply the words of myself. The Human Rights Council, however, from our perspective, has only repeated the sins of omission and commission of its predecessor organization. The United States chose not to be a candidate for membership in the UN Human Rights Council in year one or year two. So one can argue uh, whether that was the right decision of the United States or the wrong decision, but the fact of the matter is, simply speaking, as someone who's on this field, on this playing field, the United States is not there. So it, given the fact that our interests continue, because the UN Human Rights Council is a venue for discussion about Israel regularly, repeatedly, I'd even argue obsessively, but we cannot turn to the United States and the UN Human Rights Council as, uh, as our vehicle, our advocate, our voice, um, as we have traditionally in other uh, forms of the United Nations. So who do we turn to? Russia, China, the Europeans, the Latin Americans, the Africans, the Arabs, who? Or do we simply take the cavalier attitude, well, to hell with them all, it doesn't matter what the UN Human Rights Council does, I couldn't care less, uh, it's irrelevant. Well, it's not irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. That's the point. When 47 member nations of the United Nations gather as the only convening body in the world, governmental body in the world, whose charge is monitoring and protection of human rights, however much they may abuse that charge, the fact of the matter is there is no substitute today. That becomes the court of governmental opinion on human rights. How is our voice going to be heard? How are our interests going to be protected? And incidentally, just to extend this, it is that body from which emanates the planning for Durban II. You remember Durban I, the UN uh, World Conference Against Racism that took place on the eve of 9-11. That was a World Conference, which had both a governmental and a non-governmental component to it. And as you may recall, the non-governmental forum in particular, from our perspective as, yes, Jewish diplomats, went completely off the tracks. AJC uh, was there, our affiliate UN Watch was there, others were there, and the stories that people came back with were quite horrifying. People were physically afraid physically afraid, as Jews, as Zionists, as friends of Israel, whether they came from the left, the center, or the right, didn't seem to, to matter a whole lot. Uh, the governmental conference was slightly better, but only slightly better. Now, let me finish on it. Uh, I promised lots of time for questions, as much time as Charles will give us. And uh, now we have the planning for Durban II, which will take place in 2009, venue to be determined. But let me give you another insight into the UN, the world in which we're living. Who's the chair for the planning of Durban II? 
Now you can raise your hand if you wish. <laughs> if you know the answer, anyone. Libya. Um, Libya is the official chair for the planning of Durban II. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but it doesn't give me a great deal of confidence that Durban II is going to be uh, what it ought to be. What it ought to be, which is a review conference on racism. Lord knows that the world does need a conference on racism, and especially on understanding best practices for dealing with the very real phenomenon, phenomenon of racism around the world. But when a conference becomes hijacked and turned instead into a forum that becomes singularly concerned with Zionism and returns to the debate of Zionism as racism, it not only does a disservice to Zionism, but it does an even greater disservice, I submit, to victims of racism around the world. Because this was to have been their forum. This was to have been the place where they had their day in court, where those who are the true victims of racism around the world, and of slavery, and of persecution, based on religion, based on ethnicity, based on language, based on tribal affiliation, based on their indigenous status, have largely had their interests ignored or minimized because of this obsessive preoccupation with Israel and with Zionism. And again, with Libya in the chair, I fear we're likely to face the same situation. Um, thirdly, um, we live in a world where we're facing increasingly a dangerous potential mix. And that's going to challenge us as Jewish diplomats. And that potential mix is, in a way, played out with the Iranian question. And that is, what happens if and when uh, nations that have uh, goals that are, for us at least, potentially dangerous, even lethal, uh, acquire weapons of mass destruction? and marry those weapons of mass destruction with their ideology-slash-theology-slash-eschatology, i.e. end-of-days thinking. What happens then? What kind of a world do we enter? Now, we, we've had a, a, a taste of it with North Korea, which may or may not be contained. Um, a taste in the sense that we had uh, in the Hermit Kingdom a leader who left the impression that he didn't give a damn what consequences might, uh, might befall his country in the pursuit of nuclear weapons. Uh, it remains to be seen uh, whether, in fact, North Korea is abiding by agreements today. We had a second hint of it in Pakistan, uh, insofar as Benazir Bhutto's assassination once again raised the question and focused attention on what would happen in Pakistan if indeed the country went off the tracks, fell into the hands of radicals, who in turn got their hand or their finger on the bottom for a country whose nuclear weapons program is no. It's not a, it's not a secret, it's not in question. Um, 
for many uh, observers of the international scene, Pakistan remains the potential epicenter of what may happen. And then, of course, we have the question of Iran. And here again, what we're essentially saying is it's only a matter of time for some of us. It's only a matter of time. What happens then when you enter into a world where weapons of mass destruction are in the hands of people who may not be viewed as, quote, responsible, unquote, actors, and who may or may not ever use the weapons, but who may brandish the weapons, and the fact of possessing the weapons to achieve goals in the international system. Look at the contrast, for example, between North Korea and Iraq. The United States had no hesitation, I'm simply making a factual statement, in invading Iraq in 2003. In the knowledge that Iraq did not have nuclear weapons, at least not operational nuclear weapons. There was thoughts that they were working on nuclear weapons that obviously engendered controversy, doubts. We all know that. But we knew they did not have weaponization. We would not have done the same thing with North Korea. We would never have invaded North Korea because we are not certain whether or not they have nuclear weapons, and if so, whether those nuclear weapons are operational and whether they be used. And so we've treated North Korea in a very different manner, haven't we, than we have Iraq. What happens when a nation like Iran crosses the nuclear threshold? How does that change the rules of international behavior for other nations, including the United States, the European Union, Russia, China, in their dealings with Iran? And I would add, the other countries that inevitably would follow Iran should it, in fact, cross the nuclear threshold. And there's no doubt uh, amongst those with whom we speak in European and Persian Gulf capitals, that if Iran crosses the nuclear threshold, other nations, and the ones most often mentioned, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, are likely to follow. And then, frankly speaking, we're in a whole new ballgame. So if we're speaking about the future of diplomacy, whether as American citizens, whether as Jews, whether as friends of Israel, uh, the notion that we may one day be facing a, a part of the world where multiple nations possess nuclear weapons or in some kind of race, the risk of accidental warfare, the risk of deliberate warfare, the risk of nuclear brinkmanship, all of those things that we once studied, those of us who were Cold War children as I was, uh, will return. But of course return not in identical forms, but perhaps in somewhat new forms because of the nature of the regimes. Lastly, um, I want to talk a little bit about not just challenges, which I've thrown out a few uh, to all of us, but dilemmas. Uh, it will come as no shock to you, I'm sure, those of you who know the Jewish community, that there may be more than one opinion on any of these issues. These issues. Uh, there may be more than one approach. And frankly speaking, since there's no playbook, for dealing with the kind of world into which we're entering, at least none, no playbook that I'm aware of. Um, we have to try and figure out as best we can, with the tools we have available, how we, how we deal with this world, how we navigate this world, 
uh, in order to, again, ensure that, that our objectives, the ones I mentioned earlier, are one of those objectives um, which um, are attainable. Uh, not easy. So, dilemmas. Thinking you should be wrong. As one. Uh, what do we do? Those of us, and I include myself, who uh, did not accept at face value the national intelligence estimate of the U.S. government issued in early December. By the way, a national intelligence estimate that the U.S. government itself is backpedaling from. A national intelligence estimate that France and Britain have publicly rejected. A national intelligence estimate which Israel has vocally challenged. And a national intelligence estimate which many Persian Gulf nations and other Arab nations have also challenged. <coughs> and what do we do about Iran? If the objective, if the objective is to um, choose your word, persuade, convince, discourage, deter Iran from crossing the nuclear weapons threshold, I'm not talking about civilian nuclear energy for peaceful nuclear uh, for, for peaceful energy purposes. I'm talking about the weaponization based on enriched uranium and all that goes with it, the fissile material, all of that. If the goal is to stop Iran, how do you achieve it? Number one. And number two, even if you think you know how to achieve it, what posture ought Jewish organizations like AJC adopt publicly and privately? Not simple questions. Not simple questions. Uh, for one thing, uh, take the policy side of it. What to do about Iran? Well, basically four schools have emerged. And I've heard all four schools in the Jewish community, as I've heard them outside in this country and, and elsewhere. School number one. School number one says learn to live with the Iranian bomb. It's coming. Can't stop it. Or put it differently. Um, there's no way to stop it at an acceptable price. So learn to live with it. Go back to Cold War deterrence theory. Go back to the theory of mutually assured destruction. And persuade the Iranians that if, if God forbid they ever use it to annihilate the state of Israel or any of their other claims, then they're going to be destroyed in the process. And count on their rational thinking as rational human beings, which will discourage them from wishing to be destroyed. Because after all, that was the U.S.-Soviet trade-off. We didn't like each other. We had lots of differences, of course. But at the end of the day, um, we, we may not have realized it then, but both sides were rational thinkers. The Soviets were rational enough to understand that if they triggered a war with the United States, they in turn would be struck. And that given the fact that we had air, land, and sea capacity to deliver nuclear weapons, and given the fact that the Soviet Union could not destroy all three at once, we had second and third strike capability. And similarly, we knew that if we used nuclear weapons with the Soviets, they too had three strike capability, and we would be destroyed. And lo and behold, what we saw instead were proxy wars. Ethiopia and Somalia, uh, Israel and Syria and Egypt. But we never saw the direct war. So school number one says, hey, you know, India has nuclear weapons, Pakistan has nuclear weapons, Israel's uh, reported to have nuclear weapons, France and Britain, China, all have nuclear weapons. We've lived this long, we'll survive. School number two 
says, hey, no, this is a dangerous regime. This is a regime where the president talks about the return of the 12th or the hidden imam and actually seems to believe it. Seems to believe it. Uh, where he talks about the annihilation of the state of Israel, a world without Israel, etc., etc., etc. So, we need to change the regime. And so you have the regime change school uh, that argues. Look, Iran is not a monolithic country. There are all kinds of uh, centers of power. There are business people. There are students. There are journalists. There are women. Uh, there are different ethnic communities, and so forth and so on. So, figure out the, the right recipe in order to change the regime. Bring about a regime that uh, is one that the world can live with, uh, as neighbors can live with, the United States and others can live with. Uh, school number three uh, says, uh -uh. Uh, Iran's getting the bomb. Uh, regime change won't work. Uh, every time the United States or other outsiders try regime change, it's backfire. Look what happened in Iran in 1953. Uh, we're still paying the price for what we did then. Uh, so, uh, hands off. It won't work. Uh, instead, what we need is uh, we, we need a military strike. Painful, difficult, challenging, you bet. But we need it. We need it sooner rather than later because otherwise we're going to face. Iranian bomb, and as Nicholas Sarkozy said, the only thing worse than, a, than bombing Iran is, is an Iranian bomb. And the fourth school says, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh, there's another way, or actually there's a, there's a mix of potential ways, let's call it the carrot and stick school. The school that says, you know, at the end of the day, Iran wants something even more than the bomb. And we need to figure out what it is that it wants and dangle it. And some argue that what it really wants is a relationship with the United States, security guarantees, a guarantee against regime change, a recognition of Iran's regional role. And then there were smaller issues, WTO, Boeing, spare parts, and the rest. Of it. And, and they call this the grand bargain. That what, what really will change Iranian behavior would be American involvement in the process directly with an offer of a grand bargain with Iran. But to convince the Iranians that time is not necessarily on their side, that it may be working against them, that we don't have infinite patience, that the Europeans don't have infinite patience, that the IAEA and the UN Security Council don't have infinite patience, you've got to ratchet up the sticks even as you dangle the carrots. And so, Three UN Security Council sanctions resolutions today. Not terribly painful, but making a point and with a very high degree of unanimity, much more than people expected. Number one. Number two, even more punishing financial sanctions, um, quietly engineered by the US Treasury Department uh, and joined by a number of European and Persian Gulf uh, and other nations, with a number of multinational corporations and banks pulling out of the Iranian market, choking uh, access to uh, dollar-denominated, euro-denominated uh, uh, transactions, uh, credits, and the like. Uh, some, is still, some are still going on, of course, but less than before, and the trend is downward. So keep tightening the pressure, even as you dangle. And there are the four schools, essentially. If there's a fifth school, I'm not aware of it, you may be. Um, and so organizations like AJC, which are profoundly concerned by um, uh, 
Ahmadinejad, the president, what he says with respect to the Shoah, the Holocaust, Israel, um, what he does in the field of human rights, what he does in sponsoring terrorism, um, have a stake in the outcome of this. So on one hand, we have to grapple with the schools of policy, and on the other hand, we have to grapple with what kind of position does a Jewish organization take in the public sphere? Um, do we speak out? Uh, do, we, uh, do we advocate quietly? Do we do so alone? Do we do so in coalition? Do we do so in coalition with other Jewish groups, with non-Jewish groups? Who are those non-Jewish groups? What are their agendas? These are not simple questions, but they're profoundly important questions given the stakes involved. So I think I've probably gone on, Charles, long enough, although I'm just getting walked up. Um, but I, just, I wanted to give you, in a way, a kind of, what shall I call it, an insider's look beyond sort of taking today's New York Times and sort of saying, well, you know, here, here we have the Gaza issue, and here we have the Hezbollah issue, uh, and here we have the latest anti-Semitic incident uh, in, uh, in Novosibirsk, uh, all of which are obviously important and compelling and occupied time. And I want to step back and sort of take a larger picture of the way the world looks and how we, those of us involved in Jewish diplomacy who care about um, the larger objectives as you do, I'm sure, uh, are trying to grapple, are trying to see the world and grapple with that world. So thank you for the privilege to speak. Syria and the other was called Iran. Uh, 
remember, for example, that from 1980 to 1988, Iran and Iraq had, had um, fought an eight-year war. The casualties were enormous. Uh, they estimated to be well over a million. But the point is this, that in that eight-year war, uh, no country could really inflict a decisive blow on the other. The United States led army in 2003, again, this is not a question of whether you support or oppose the war, marched into Iraq, and despite all of the um, pundits' views that this was going to be a, a very difficult war, the fact of the matter was that the initial phase of the war uh, was a lot easier than people had expected. That must have sent shockwaves in Tehran and Damascus, who were petrified both by the power of the U.S., number one, and by the sudden proximity of the U.S., which now sat on the borders of both Syria and Iran. Now fast forward, five years later. What countries are the most emboldened in the region? Uh, ironically, Syria and Iran. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. They are the most emboldened. Uh, they see the United States bogged down uh, in uh, Iraq, and by the way, increasingly it seems in Afghanistan. And they see growing domestic division here about the uh, validity and about the purpose of the war. And uh, Iran has skillfully exploited those developments to its advantage, strengthening its position, as you say, regionally, including in Iraq, including in Gaza, where, again, I would argue another U.S. mistake, namely pressing for the elections against, against the better judgment of Mahmoud Abbas, of the Palestinian Authority, against the better judgment of the Israelis, and against the better judgment of the Egyptians, each of whom made the case to the U.S. administration not to go ahead with elections at this moment in time, but the U.S. had this, in theory, wonderful opinions by it. The notion that this was a time to introduce democracy. One second, sir. Um, to introduce democracy. And I, I would argue that democracy is no fiercer defender than many of us. But at the same time, um, um, look what we have now. A situation which only complicates matters more and strengthens Iran, as Iran has also been strengthened in Lebanon. Through the nexus of its relationship with Syria and Hezbollah. And as we see, Lebanon today does not have a president is not likely to have a president tomorrow. And meanwhile, that, that, um, that uh, fragile majority in the Lebanese parliament that was prepared to elect an anti-Syrian uh, president is one by one disappearing as victims of assassins' bullets. And there seems to be a clear line between those bullets and that strategy and what capitals? Damascus and Tehran. But your question goes beyond that. And now I'll come, if I make it to this gentleman. It has to do with how do, we, how do we present to a skeptical American public today that fears for the entanglement in the Middle East 
after witnessing Iraq and Afghanistan, and then wonders, wait a second, does this mean that people are pushing us toward war in Iran? And the answer, it seems to me, is number one, uh, no. No, I put Walter Mearsheimer aside. Um, and uh, uh, for those of you interested, uh, uh, we're on the record on Walter Mearsheimer and their, their arguments, and we're happy to make that point of view available to you on their assertions in their book, The Israel Lobby. But number one, Iran is a global issue. It's not a Jewish issue, it's not an Israel issue, nor should it be portrayed as an American issue. It's a global issue. Russia, at the end of the day, does not want a nuclear Iran on its southern flank any more than Israel wishes a nuclear Iran. And interestingly, President Sarkozy of France, as recently as a few days ago, spoke to the French public and said, those missiles being built in Iran can reach Europe. Why? Why? If, Iran, if uranium enrichment is for peaceful purposes only, why do they need to extend the range of their ballistic missiles in Iran to reach Europe? So, Charles, it seems to me that the first answer is, is, is the answer that Iran poses a global challenge uh, and we need to ensure that it is seen that way and that the challenge is not somehow um, personalized as simply the challenge of AJC or the Slifka Center or American Jews or the State of Israel or the United States. And secondly, I think we need to challenge various communities that ought to be more concerned about Iranian policies, plural, plural. When the president of Iran comes to Columbia University in the fall of 2007 and cavalierly declares that there are no homosexuals in Iran, that women are the freest in the world, it seems to me that anyone concerned about human rights needs to be heard. When students in Iran are imprisoned for exercising a right of protest, students at Yale University should be the first ones to be heard. And it doesn't matter whether they're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Baha'i, Zoroastrian, atheist, agnostic, or whatever. And when women's rights are denied, and when people are hung, uh, in public, as we have seen, it seems to me it, it requires an international human rights outcry, and not just from some of us. So those to me are, are the main points. May I call this gentleman? Sir. What about the infidel issue? Take me a step further. <laughs> there was a conference. Help me. There was a conference of some 56, 57 Muslim countries in Malaysia. Right. At which point that conference finalized with the elimination of the infidel. The infidel is one who does not believe Muhammad or Allah, which means the rest of the world. There's some one billion, three hundred billion, according to your numbers, of Muslims in this world. Fifty-seven Muslim countries in the United Nations, almost one third. What power do they generate? But the infidel question. As far as I'm concerned, there's something to do with our president's policy. And on that note, I would like to say, I'd like to see Americans love America more 
that there ain't President Bush. Okay. Um, I think what you're referring to, sir, is uh, the 57-member organization of the Islamic Conference. It's called the OIC, which met in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, a couple of years ago, and it coincided with the uh, end of the uh, leadership of uh, Mr. Mahathir. Does that name ring a bell? Uh, he was the Prime Minister of Malaysia. He's the one who gave the speech that you're referring to, uh, I believe. And he's the one who invoked openly, transparently, anti-Semitic language at this governmental conference of 57 member states. And what was the response? He got a standing ovation. So I think your concern, if, 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 I'm not putting words in your mouth, I hope, which was our concern, was wait a second. Um, 57 governments sit there, listen to this, and then give a standing ovation. Um, is that the kind of message that should be sent? Now, we spoke with a number of the governments afterwards. And they say, well, you know, we gave a standing ovation not to his anti-Semitic part. We gave a standing ovation out of respect to him as the Prime Minister of Malaysia, some other things that he said in his speech about development and sustainability, and out of respect for the fact that he was retired as Prime Minister. So this is what we were told. You can choose to believe it or not. I don't. <laughs> Why does that surprise me? <laughs> um, but the larger question you ask is the right question. I believe the larger question you ask, which will define the 21st century, is um, in effect, um, I'll invoke Rodney King. Remember Rodney from uh, yep. from Los Angeles? You know what did he say? And we all sort of learn to live with each other. And, you know, again, it, it may sound hokey, but I think at the end of the day, the 21st century is going to largely revolve around that very simple but profound question, at which point someone might say, well, David, yeah, sure, but that's always been the case. I mean, love thy neighbor as thyself is about 3,000 years old, and we still can't get those Love thy neighbor as thyself. We still can't get those five words right. Two and that are not in front of ourselves. Maybe. So we can't get those five words right after 3,000 years. The difference is that in the 21st century, those who want to emphasize otherness will have weapons of mass destruction. That's the difference. So that the ability to wreak havoc in the name of difference of otherness, of ideology based on faith, and, uh, becomes all exponentially more significant. And so that's why it seems to me in the 21st century the real race will be to find not just people here, but yes, there are people within those 57 countries represented in the OIC, I want to believe, call me naive, who don't share an ap apocalyptic goal and who don't share the view that this is a civilizational conflict along religious lines. I, I, I want to believe it. One of those 57 countries, for example, is Turkey. And I'm not prepared to believe that all 70 million inhabitants of Turkey um, share that view of the Prime Minister of Malaysia, for example. So when do people count? Well, uh, they have to count. 
They have to count because the truth of the matter is, just one more thought, I see a few other hands. Who are the leaders? Well, for one second. And we're not going to change Islam from the outside, sir. Any more than, than Muslims are going to change Jews on the inside. The, 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 the culture comp, if you will, the cultural struggles, I believe, are as much within civilizations as between. So, you know, if I had a, a bit of conceit and a bit of time, I would write a response to Samuel Huntington's um, book, and I would call it um, The Battle Within Civilizations. Because I think, I believe it's the battle within civilizations that will ultimately define whether or not there is a civilizational struggle or not. And believe me, there is a battle within civilizations. Within, within the Jewish world, there is a battle for the soul of the Jewish people. You see it played out in Israel, you see it played out here. Within the Christian world, it's still, take the, the, the Vatican, between the, if you will, the apostles of, of Vatican Council II, and the spirit of John Paul XXIII on the one hand, and, and those who re represent the far more conservative. Pope John XXIII. Pope, I'm sorry, I, what did I say? said John Paul. I'm sorry. The splinter cults are hard to keep track. John, the, I, the splinter cults are hard to keep track. And, 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 the, and, and the pre Vatican Council II um, believers. Uh, Take any civilization. So it seems to me that we can't write off, and I'm not sure whether you were suggesting it, 1.3 billion members of a global faith and simply monolithically say they are all this or that. Ultimately, the soul of Islam will be determined by Muslims. And those of us on the outside will watch with great interest, will have a stake in the outcome, to be sure, may be able on the margins to make some decisions, for example, whether Turkey does or does not get into the European Union, does affect this vote, this, 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 this discussion, as one example. So there, Europeans may have a role in shaping Turkey's future, but ultimately, it's within. And that's where the battle will be fought, and I believe that we, we, we cannot simply write off that battle is if they're all the same, they all believe the same, they all hate us. Some do, I'd like to think some don't. Uh, Charles, you're, you're in charge. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for your question. And yeah, so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the, um, the way agency diplomacy shifted now that there's these sort of new sources of new centers of power. For example, China, India, Brazil, South America. And I wonder, when American Jews are now talking to representatives, politicians, intellectuals from those countries, how the common ground is different. What you appeal to, besides, say, the kind of obvious threat of Iraq, of, of Iran, you're not talking, say, just you know, Western Europeans anymore, but when talking, for example, to people in Asia or in South America, what, what is it you do refer to? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, yeah, AJC uh, has uh, sort of staked out a, a very ambitious foreign policy uh, plan. Uh, we have eight offices overseas, including an office in India. We've had an office in India now for several years. Uh, and we have been seeking for some time to open an office in China, which is a little more complicated on the ground. 
Um, we had as well four regional institutes, fully funded, fully staffed, one on Asia, one on Africa, one on Latin America, and one on Europe. Uh, and those institutes devote all of their time, as you would imagine, to the regions we're talking about. So the first, the first element of this is to have the expertise. Uh, dealing with, uh, with Brazil or Japan is not the same as dealing with Poland or Latvia, to state the obvious. And the history itself is different, and, and the cultural norms are different. Go down the list. So that's the first thing. Um, secondly, uh, you know, at first glance, one would say, hmm, it's a pretty steep uphill climb, the guy's describing. But then when you begin to look at it more and more closely, um, we have assets. We have assets. We, 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 Jewish diplomacy, Jewish people, we have assets. Asset number one, just off the top of my head. Um, according to historians, there are only two countries in the world that house Jews with no history of anti-Semitism. Um, India. India being what? China. China. Non-Christian. Well, interesting, the two largest countries in the world, both you know, galloping fast down the pike, have no history of anti-Semitism. So to begin with, um, there is an advantage. Not only that, but it goes a step further. In both countries, we have found there is a deep and profound admiration for the Jewish people. It's not contrived, it's not manufactured, um, it's real. Um, it's based on several things from our experience. Number one, a sense of respect for, um, for the history and the continuity. They see themselves as proud historical civilizations. They see Jews as another proud historical civilization which faced adversity like they did, they, they believe, uh, and managed to prevail, and manages to this day to blend tradition and modernity as they do, or aspire to do. Third, they have great respect for the Jewish mind. Uh, when I was in Tokyo on one of our visits, one evening we went out with uh, several Japanese friends, and after a few uh, sake rounds, one turned to us and said, my friend, may I ask you a question? Sure. What's the Jewish secret? <laughs> I know so many Jewish secrets, I wasn't sure which one to reveal. <laughs> Anti-Semitic, the kind that preoccupies 
Charles's Institute, and AJC. But some of them were more questionably anti-Semitic because they had titles like um, learn how to negotiate the way the Jews negotiate, or buy stocks the way the Jews buy stocks. Now, some sensitive Jews in America said, oi, fault. This is unadulterated anti-Semitism. And in their reflexive fashion, went to their press releases and, you know, slammed the Japanese. We went to Japan instead, and we discovered they meant nothing uh, hurtful. To the contrary, they, in their own clumsy way perhaps, intended to be admiring. They want to learn how to negotiate better, and they believe we negotiate better. They think we pick stocks better. They were, they were, they were, they were saddened that someone might have ascribed to them something malicious in this. So there is that. Um, as well, fourthly, I think, and I'll make a grandiose statement, um, um, you know, Jews were among the early globalizers. Go back in, in, in European history, Mediterranean history, Middle East history, Silk Road history, go back to the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. We, <laughs> that's the grandiose part, we, I, uh, we, were, we, were, we were early globalizers. When the Sassoons went from Iraq to India to China, and when the Rothschilds sent their five sons and created an international banking system and, and, and all the rest, we were early globalizers. In today's globalized world, hundreds of years later, again, we are well attuned to being globalizers. It was interesting to me that shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, for example, among the very first to go into Central and Eastern Europe were Jews, Jewish businessmen, Jewish journalists, Jewish entrepreneurs, Jewish innovators, Jewish community organizers. And in our meetings throughout Asia, I can't begin to tell you how many times Indian, Japanese, South Korean, uh, Hong Kong, Singaporean, and others would tell us, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when markets in America were largely closed to us, when joint ventures were still a rarity, when we were trying to establish outlets in the United States or business partners, who was there for us? American Jews, not AJC, not the Federation, not the Yale Institute, but individual Jews were more open to the ideas. Many of them remember this. So there are assets, um, and there's another asset. With all that I said earlier about a, a relative decline in American power over time, America still counts, and we still count in America. And as long as we count in a country that counts, other countries, Brazil, China, India, the ones you mentioned, will care about us because in turn they see us as important players here, important voices here with an international dimension, and we do have it. So, yeah, we have to learn new languages, and I don't just mean linguistic languages, new cultural languages, cultural competencies. Um, we have to get beyond our, 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 our Polish um, syndrome, meaning we can't get beyond what happened to us in Eastern Europe, 
and recognize there's a world out there where in a country like Brazil, what happened to us in the 1930s and 40s doesn't count for much in negotiation. It's not going to win you points. You're going to have to find other ways to win points when you're in Brasilia, or when you're in Pretoria, or when you're in New Delhi, or when you're in Beijing. I think it can be done. That's my message. But it's going to require some retooling. I was just wondering yes, about uh, your comments on the Prime Minister's hyper marché, which they have hypermarkets uh, in France. We have supermarkets, and uh, <laughs> hyper marché is, you know, it's a big a supermarket. And you talk about Iran, Iraq, and Kuwait, and actually didn't mention Kuwait much, but they all used to be part of one empire. And the United States, for all of its America called unity is very divided uh, in a number of different ways. And it always has been. It's part of how it's designed, part of the checks and balances of state, local, and federal. Um, and I know this doesn't seem like a question until, well, the shadow of the nuclear that we both grew up with. I think a little old if you are. But we both grew up, and we both grew up with it. I mean, I'm almost 50. Right. To get to the point of the question, the brass is attracted to the war, but uh, our handling of our own atomics at home has become sloppy, not as sloppy as the Soviet, the next Soviet. But when a B-52 flies across the country with a bomb by accident, that's true. You know, the, the brass is not really paying due diligence. Oh, couldn't be more on that. And what do we do? Couldn't be more on that. I do want to take a couple of things. So, well, I, 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 I had to take a lot less than 50, so that's, uh, I didn't mean that as a compliment. So, given that your talk is taking place at an academic institution, and for those of us who are pursuing graduate degrees and some sort of career in academia or affiliated with academia, um, the question is, to what extent can we as academics um, who want to deal with all the issues that you spoke about today and who are Jews and who feel very strongly about their Jewish identity, but at the same time have to face the requirements of being an academic, which are to sustain a, a level of objectivity, balancing those two, to what extent can we be resources um, to Dealing with the issues that you spoke about. Does the free world have the patience and the stamina to prevail in the current fight? Charles raised a, a very negative question about where we are in Iraq and, and the potential for creating power vacuum that would enhance Iran and Syria's um, power in the region. On the other hand, one can make a case that our success there in supporting the moderates and achieving some form of democracy, it may not be our democracy, but some form of democracy, would certainly make a very powerful statement and help balance against the threats of Iran and Syria. But the question is, does the American public have the stamina to 
prevail, just like do the Israelis have the stamina to prevail? You know, we like fast wars, six-day wars, quick victory, not a lot of losses of life, and uh, the other side may have more patience and more stamina. So one more. I have stamina. I, I have stamina for more questions. Sure. Sure. I'm curious, the Archbishop of Canterbury is a
Israelis were the first to discover what was going on, and yes, there was a significant North Korean connection. And it was the Israelis who told the Americans what was going on. This is important in relation to Iran, because one of the many questions surrounding the Iran issue, uh, and one that I was not convinced by in the National Intelligence Estimate of December, is what is it that we don't know? If the United States did not know what was going on in Syria for several years with the uh, guiding hand of North Korea, if that's true, if it's true, what else don't we know? And therefore, how imperfect is our intelligence capability, both human intelligence and signal intelligence? How imperfect is it? And uh, the theory also goes that if the North Koreans were prepared to do what they were prepared to do in Syria, how much more might they be prepared to do in Iran, which traditionally has been much closer to North Korea even than Syria? These are all, for me, very big questions without obvious answers. But again, um, in my reading of Seymour Hersh's article in New Yorker, I don't think he got the, the main storyline right. Um, so that's, that was, I hope that, I think this gentleman had asked about the... And to what degree do they need to accommodate us? Um, and uh, to what degree do we have values that we cherish and seek to defend? And to what degree are those values up for negotiation? Those are active questions in many European countries. So, for example, Doug and I were recently in, uh, in Germany, and we heard a discussion about, uh, from various perspectives, on these very issues, including from a Swedish-Kurdish woman, who essentially said that Sweden, and I'm paraphrasing her, I, I, uh, I, can't, uh, I can't comment on what she said, but, but she said quite passionately that Sweden has essentially of abdicated on its traditional Swedish values to, to try to create a new Sweden that reflects a multicultural belief system and value system. Um, that's one set of, of, of discussions going on. Other countries are in the throes of their own debate. How far do you go? How far do they go in order to accommodate each other? And what forms the essence of identity. Is there something called British identity or French identity? Um, is it static? Is it dynamic? Is it up for negotiation, for redefinition, or what? And I think the Archbishop of Canterbury, whether he intended it or not, was triggering far larger questions about these very issues. And by the backlash that he received, beginning with Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister of the UK, I think he realized that he may have gone too far in that respect. But the debate is ongoing, by the way, closer to home, the debate is ongoing at Harvard University. As you may have seen, I mean, with at least two issues that have made the newspapers recently, one with respect to, um, to the gymnasium at Harvard University, where a group of Muslim female students apparently asked for restricted use of the gymnasium a few hours a week, because they were uncomfortable exercising the presence of men. Did I get, did I get that right? I, 
I'm not sure I should identify him as a Harvard graduate here in New Haven, but um, that's his risk. <laughs> uh, and the other issue was the call to prayer, which apparently was being broadcast at Harvard Yard. Or yeah, over the over loudspeakers. Yeah. Over loudspeakers um, in the course of the day, and whether this was appropriate or not. And you know, I'm sure we can spend you know hours here in this room discussing and debating these issues and. And, and so it's not so not only what the Archbishop of Canterbury is saying, it's what the Harvard administration, perhaps one day the Yale administration, is deciding about these kinds of issues, and um, and where they begin, where they end, what 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 form of religious accommodation is appropriate, is inappropriate. Um, the third question, I think, was that gentleman. Do we have a stamina? Well, I have to tell you. Um, I can only hope so. Do the Israeli people have the stamina? I can only hope so. And you know what? I, I'll, I'll, I'm betting on them. They have no choice. I'm betting on them for that, exactly that reason. Um, you know, they've had stamina for 60 years. I don't think it's a stamina that Israelis sought. Um, I, I don't believe that uh, the, the survivors of the Shoah, uh, the remnant uh, community that, uh, that arrived on the shores of Palestine, uh, the refugees from North Africa, the forgotten refugees, as they're called, including my wife's family, uh, the refugees from uh, Eastern Europe, coupled with uh, the small Yishuv, the small community that was there uh, on the eve of uh, independence, uh, all gathered in order to live in a permanent state of conflict. Uh, I don't believe this is what they sought. And uh, 60 years later, um, they are still defending their nation. This is now a different times. You know, there is a threat of uh, nuclear weapons. So it's not only, if, you know, Israel, uh, you know, we keep holding. It's, it's, I, I, I hear it's not only if Israel was. It's not if uh, Israel and Israelis can still hold. I'd say it's a different level of uh, threat. No. I, I could agree more. But Israel but, was post 48 and bomb dropped. Before that, I don't know if you are if you are really thinking of what you are saying, but Iran or any other Arabic nation never had a nuclear uh, ability. Now it is getting there. It is changing. Okay? So this is the issue. Yeah. So we're entering into a new era, but I, I still don't see it. I, I, I hear an Israeli accent, if I'm not mistaken. But I, I, so you will know more than I. My accent is not as Israeli as you can probably can tell. <laughs> much as I spent a, a great deal of time in Israel, and, um, and in fact have a son in Israel, living in Israel. Um, but um, I, I, you know, is the salmon there? I have, I have to believe it is. I want to believe it is. Maybe I'm conflating the two. Uh, I also want to believe and have to believe that um, not just the United States, but the West will find the stamina, uh, will also find, if you will, if I can put it this way, will find the self-respect to believe it's worth defending a set of values. However imperfect those values may be, I'm, I'm not suggesting that uh, we live in perfect societies where it works in progress, but those who believe that there is no moral distinction between the Taliban run Afghanistan and um, the Britain of today, or the United States of today, uh, to me, has a, uh, um, a 
haven't understood what a Taliban war in Afghanistan is. And uh, I found the same thing, by the way, in the Cold War. As you heard from Charles, I spent quite a bit of time in the Soviet Union, um, including uh, in the embrace of the KGB. And uh, I was stunned um, in the West at the failure of some, and this will also come to the academic question in a moment of this lady. I was stunned by the failure of some in the West who should have known better to understand the fundamental moral and ethical distinctions. And by the way, if you think I was stunned, you had to see the Jews and others who were able to leave the Soviet Union and who arrived in Rome, which was the transit point in the 70s and 80s um, for resettlement, uh, come to Rome and see the power of the Pichi, the, the, the Communist Party of Italy, and the ubiquitousness of the hammer and sickle. And even though this was a Euro-Communist Party, which was viewed as a more moderate version of Soviet Communism, the Russian Jews were simply stunned. They had just spent years trying to get out of the Soviet Union. <laughs> they arrived in Italy, thinking this is a wonderfully democratic country, which it is, and they see a political party within the democratic mainstream that uses the hammer and sickle as its slogan um, and, uh, and, and expresses global solidarity with, uh, with workers of the world. Um, you have to see the faces of the Soviet refugees. So, yeah, um, maybe more people need to spend more time in the Taliban run Afghanistan to understand distinctions. Um, but I, I, I hope and pray that there are people who understand that the fight is worth fighting. Um, uh, the second question was the lady in the back that sort of segues into it. I, 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 I wouldn't have the, the chutzpah um, to, to tell you I, I've been a, uh, a pseudo-academic. Uh, I've been a visiting professor, um, but I don't know actually well enough honestly, to answer your question. Well, the one thing that I will say is I miss the voice of students uh, in, in, uh, in the world today. That's a blanket statement, and I'm sure there are many exceptions, but having three children who have just gone through three uh, universities and um, are now all entered graduate school, which means that, you know, I'm going to be paying for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, um, so I don't know whether it's a Jewish father to be proud or despairing, <laughs> or both, um, of, of, of that. But um, um, I ask myself, where are the students? I came from that infamous generation of the late 60s. Um, we probably spent more time outside the classroom than in the classroom, uh, more time demonstrating and believing that uh, we could change the world on our watch, and in some respects perhaps did. Um, and I wonder, I, you know, I, I see students in Iran being beaten and arrested, imprisoned, and I ask why aren't students in America standing with students in Iran? Uh, I, I see the biggest, to me, national security question in the United States, which is our dependence on imported energy. And I ask myself, why aren't students conflating um, the national security angle and the environmental angle and putting it together and leading institutions like Yale and leading our nation towards what we need, which is not just energy independence, but fossil-free energy independence. Uh, 
because uh, if we're looking at transformative uh, formulas, I can't think of a more transformative formula for the balance of power of the world uh, over the medium term, it won't happen overnight obviously, than, uh, than moving, moving beyond where we are today in the field of energy. Uh, to me, this is a, a tailor-made issue for campuses. I, I won't say for academics, uh, certainly for students. It's tailor-made. Um, it can bring together the right and the left, uh, the, the, the political and the otherwise indifferent. Um, uh, and I, I, I see glimpses of it, but I don't see the mass movements that became such a feature, certainly in my university career from 1966 to 71 when I was an undergraduate. Uh, um, the other thing that I found when I was, when I was uh, teaching at Johns Hopkins was uh, that uh, some of the pro-Israel students uh, in, in the master's degree program that I was teaching at approached me and said, um, we, need a, we need a Jewish mentor. We don't have one. Uh, most of the Jewish faculty, they said, I'm simply quoting them, I can't comment, uh, are AWOL. They don't want to identify, they don't want to get involved. And they said this was in 2000, 2001, we Jews, we've been ambushed. We don't know what hit us. Um, First was the Intifada, and then all the accusations against Israel, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, mass murder, you name it. Uh, we may or may not support a, a particular Israeli government, but we know there's something, there's something inherently unfair about these accusations. We don't know how to respond. And then along came 2001, and suddenly we're accused of 9-11 by all these demonic conspiratorial theories. Uh, and. Uh, and the students again come, came back and said, help us. You know, how do we deal with this? Uh, we thought we were simply going to have a you know, graduate school experience in international relations, um, an academic uh, you know, experience. Of, of, and uh, we're finding ourselves challenged. In some respects, we're finding ourselves demonized. We don't know how to grapple with it. And we don't know the route to turn. And uh, again, I can't speak to the issue of Yale, but um, I, I can say we're where I found myself, there were no, there were no mentors. There was no one the students could turn to who had a few years more experience, and it would be a sounding board for them as they tried to figure out how to grapple with these issues, um, who they were, how they related to these issues, whether they wanted a public posture or not. So to me, faculty could play a very important role. In, and from a distance at AJC, for example, we hear again and again the same complaint. Um, the Jewish faculty, by and large, generally, in these debates, are AWOL. Um, they're, they're either um, indifferent, they don't want to identify, or they may, in fact, identify, but with other positions that are not necessarily friendly um, to Israel or, or friendly to, to some of the things we've talked about here tonight. Um, and as far as the, uh, the, uh, the issue of, uh, especially the uh, uh, the B-52, the Aaron B-52, and the, uh, I can only agree with you. The apathy and ignorance and strange lack of that one I can only agree with you. I, I was as stunned as, uh, as anyone when I saw that. Uh, it's not the first time. I fear it won't be the last time. But what it does suggest is that uh, even as we focus on, on what's going on in Iran and so forth, we dare not lose sight of what's going on here because an accidental uh, occurrence it's like we're worse than our own terrorist threats. Our, our accidental occurrence could wreak havoc here uh, if we're not if we're not 
I'm careful. So I'm glad you raised that issue. So.